This is Leadership in Action, and I'm Casey Cheshire. Join me as we delve deep into the passions, expertise, and experiences of Boston area innovators. Sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, this is Leadership in Action. All right, here we go. After months of scheduling, this is about to happen. I'm so excited to introduce you to my guest today. He is an entrepreneur and an educator, a consultant to the United Nations, yes, the UN, on engaging students and teachers globally. He's also an advocate for entrepreneurship and education together for those same people. He's a growth consultant at Cruise Consulting Group and co-founder at Best Delegate Model United Nations, Ryan Villanueva. Welcome to the show, sir. Good to be on. Thanks, Casey. Thanks for having me. Man, if you do any more, my, your intro is just going to take me another direction. I almost didn't make it through that. <laughs> uh, it is extended, uh, but I, I appreciate all the plugs, the plugs in there. You're a busy guy. <laughs> Got to. Got to stay Got busy. Got to do it, man. It's that drive. Well, hey, let me start this whole thing off by first of all, saying that you've got so much stuff going on there. I can't wait to pick your brain on these different topics. I know we've had some conversations where we're like, oh, wait, we shouldn't talk about that just yet because we're going to be on a podcast together. So now we're here. It's time. And I'm going to start by passing you this thing. It's heavy, but I know you work out. So you got this thing. Ugh. Okay. Here's Whoa. The actual the thing. Near. Grab that. Grab okay. It. All right. You got Grabbing. It. All right. There you go. Right there. All right. Take Thor's hammer. Smash for, for me some kind of myth. Oh, there it is. Look, it transformed into it United Nations. It transformed into a bottle UN gavel. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Take that gavel. Smash for me a myth. What is a common misconception or myth about leadership or being an entrepreneur? Hmm. Um, I think one myth I can smash. I think when people think about entrepreneurs, they're thinking venture backed, like tech startups, SaaS companies, Silicon Valley. And that's what most people think, which is definitely like a really cool and important uh, area of entrepreneurship. Yeah. Sure. But I think most of entrepreneurship is actually like small business owners. I think people that um, are, are running different types of companies uh, all over the United States and all over the world. I think entrepreneurship includes um, you know, people that are selling like food, you know, off their carts in New York City and yeah. New Delhi, you know? Yeah. Um, I think entrepreneurship includes like corporate executives and people that are just starting out in the first year of their careers within a large company, uh, trying to make a positive change in their companies and positive impact. And so I think entrepreneurship is a lot broader than what is literally um, skewered in the show Silicon Valley. Uh, and I think entrepreneurship is just anyone that's trying to make a positive, positive change. Yeah. But help me out with that. Cause I, I know there's that common conversation around, you know, companies going after a profit, Ooh, evil. And then the idea of some companies, you know, are, are trying to make good things happen. Balance for me that out. Are there kind of companies that do that or mm -hmm. are all companies bad? You know, like how do you... <laughs> Um, as a fellow I mean, entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah, right. As a fellow business owner, entrepreneur, and, and millions of companies. No, actually, I really love this subject yeah. because I do believe that um, companies, as well as citizens and governments and just all people, like, yes, we, sh we should be trying to make a positive impact. I believe that specifically for businesses and, and companies, 
that our social impact um, ought to be aligned with business objectives, including profitability. And in fact, that's the only, in my view, like real way to create scalable impact is when it's aligned to creating economic impact. Um, and it's actually a, a framework that I learned from, from Harvard professor, Michael Porter around um, creating economic value, business value, and social value simultaneously, which he referred to as creating shared value. That economic. we can create, yeah, we can create um, products, uh, target markets, especially those who are underserved, um, which generates revenue. Yeah. Or we can find ways to improve um, our, our costs, our supply chains, value chains. Uh, we can lower costs uh, in a way that is better for the environment. Wow. And that actually improves profitability overall. Um, is it kind of like all ships rising in the harbor at once? Like if you, if you work on one, it works in the other? Or is it not always like that? So that's actually one of his other approaches to creating shared value is when businesses, corporations um, learn how to work with the local community uh, in which they operate. Um, as partners, they learn how to work with local governments as partners. They're able to open new markets, which actually attracts competition like other businesses can enter, but they're the ones leading the way. And they actually end up capturing more market share as a result. And he, he shared some case studies with my class on that. Um, so yeah, there's a like rising tide lifts all boats uh, part of that as well. Does he have a name for this unicorn of a company? Like is there, is it a classification? Is it like the social enterprise or? He, um, so he actually went into like, and totally dissected, like here are the terms that you hear, social enterprise and like yeah. ESG and all that stuff. And he's, you know, Professor Porter has come from an economics background, right? And obviously a business school professor. Yeah. And he just called it CSV, creating shared value. Um, and that there are CSV companies, there are companies that are very focused on on creating shared value. Um, and it's how it's different from CSR, which is like corporate social responsibility, where that's like, you know, we're gonna help people volunteer and we're gonna donate a part of our profits to um, important causes, which is like very valuable, highly valuable. Um, but he's like that, you know, for most companies is a cost center. Like it's a cost to fund a corporate social responsibility program. And that's important, but that's, um, you know, limited. Yeah. It's, it's limited to the extent that a company is willing to allocate those funds. Whereas in creating shared value, if you identify, for example, a revenue opportunity, you're able to create um, a new product or a new category of products. Um, that opportunity is unlimited um, or limited to the extent that that market can, can grow. And if it's creating a social impact simultaneously, that's how we create scalable impact. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was very, um, it, was, it really shaped my thinking, reshaped my thinking on entrepreneurship um, and on sustainability and on social impact. I, I like the the twist. You know, if we've always had this social responsibility and you wonder, you know, is that corporation doing that just to get press or are they truly doing it? But either sure. way, if, when times get tight or COVID hits, you know, marketing and that is probably the first to go, right? It's the first thing on the chopping block. We don't have extra cash, kill the CSR. But the idea of transforming that concept into, no, 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 don't make it just hot air. Make it something that really helps your community, but also can transform your business, can be a revenue generator. And, and that it's not, it's not inauthentic to, to create something that does both. I think that's the key. It, it does need to be authentic. And yeah. let's just say there are certainly, you know, companies, executives, entrepreneurs that, um, 
you know, may just put lip service to it. Right. And we, we think of that as greenwashing, right. We're just like calling, calling it out. Right. And then it's like, okay, do you really buy into this or not? So there's that. I'm not trying to say like, this is the end all be all, but I think it's important to present the business case and it needs to be a logical sound business case that's tied to financials and profits in order for a business to like really take this on and integrate it. Um, and my argument to most business owners and entrepreneurs is that, you know, you may not be thinking of your product or service, like in terms of positive impact, but if you really drill down to it, if you are truly helping a fellow business grow, if you are, you know, if you are helping a consumer with their particular need, right? Like if you really drill down to it, if it's tied to your purpose, cause your passion, like there is a social impact there. And I would further argue that by creating profitability, a profitable enterprise and creating jobs for people, as long as they're decent, well-paying jobs, you are actually supporting one of the world's global goals, which is right behind me, actually, if you look to uh, over one of my shoulders, SDG eight on decent work and economic growth. Mm. The United Nations and world leaders identify that economic growth actually is social impact. Wow. So if you're a business owner, you're an entrepreneur and you're creating a you know, good, profitable company, that's, that should also be a sustainable company. It's, it's financially sustainable. And as long as you're you know, treating your people well, then you're also creating decent work. So I think more people, re- you know, uh, my message to a lot of business owners is, you make an impact whether you know it or not. And it's a question of, is it a net positive impact or is it potentially net negative? And then if you know that, then you can do something about it. Right. You got to ask the question. Otherwise, I mean, keeping the blinders on is not a valid option. It's an option, but it's not a good one. Um, You know, when you mentioned, you know, you may be helping and you don't even realize it. I I found that a lot when I've been doing marketing and Uh different companies I've been at, sometimes it's really sexy. It's like travel, it's like trips to Europe or it's, you know, Spotify or something just badass. And you're just like, this is cool. Other times it's like sprockets or it's data integration software. And you're like, hmm, huh. it, it's, it's a lot harder. And, and I found that, you know, on the sales side and the marketing side, if you're mm-hmm. passionate about what you do and you're passionate about helping people, then it, it's everything just feels better and it works better. And so yeah. it's been kind of hard for some marketers who are like, my company sells widgets. Like, how do I care? And the, the one thing that I've been able to isolate is that least you can help the marketer at that other company like the mm-hmm. agency okay yeah i know they do sprockets and we don't really care about sprockets but you know sarah over there or john or whoever they are like we could help them in their career and they could they could just shoot through the roof get a promotion and that can bless their family and their company yeah. can do well like we can we can help them out but it sounds like there's even more now I'm, i was kind of just thinking about the person over there but there's the larger picture of you know you're creating jobs you're creating all sorts of, there's like that second and third order effects. Yeah. you realize. So um, you mentioned that I'm a growth consultant at, yeah. uh, at Cruise Consulting Group. And there's one thing that I do with companies. There's a lot that we do, but one of them is about identifying your why. Mm. Like, why do you do what you do? Um, and, you know, a lot of people think of that as like mission statement or like purpose, cause, or passion. And, you know, when I work with teams and, and business owners and entrepreneurs to like narrow down like, why do you do what you do? It inevitably comes down to something around, yes, helping people. And even the examples you offered, like 
data integration software, like, right. We're, but I would ask, well, okay, we're, what companies are you supporting? What businesses are you supporting by, by doing that? And like, how are they using their data to therefore make their own impact on either other businesses or, or consumers? Um, and that data, as you're very well aware, is like, that's a huge, that's a huge like field. It's huge. And, and it's, it surrounds us. It like got, it's, it's in everything that we're doing, especially in this modern workplace. And, you know, any like making improvements in data actually has like a very scalable, scalable impact. Um, I think one of the companies that knows this best is, is Salesforce. And I was speaking with, um, one of their, um, their executives at salesforce.org, which is like, you know, how they support nonprofits. Um, and corporate social responsibility programs. And he's like the head of impact measurement, Wow! right? How do you measure the impact that a business is making or a nonprofit is making? That's a huge, huge field. And it all has to do with how you track the data, how are you measuring yeah. the data? So I think there's a total, a total uh, impact there. Wow. It, and that kind of ties into this why. I'd love to dive in a little more to that. How mm -hmm. do you help people establish that? Because I imagine there's other entrepreneurs listening right now, or maybe about to be entrepreneurs, um, even if you've been doing it for years, that, that why question can be elusive. How do you, how do you pick one out? If you, if you were to, you know, advise me or advise someone, sure. you would, how do you, how do yeah. you get to that? Are you familiar with Jim Collins? Good to great. Yeah. And the idea of the, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal. Okay. Yeah. No, tell, tell everyone about that. So. I think people like have heard the book and maybe have yeah. read the book and they know the term like BHAG and like, that sounds good. Um, yeah. right. but That's like, about it, right? <laughs> I know it's like, oh, we stopped there. That sounds good. <laughs> big goal, right? Um, hundred million dollar, you know, annual revenue or something like big Harry Edish skull. But you know, if you read the book, he, he goes into like, there is the, there's the core to a great company, which is the intersection between what are they the best in the world at? What are they most passionate about? And this is very key, what drives their economic engine. And that driver of economics, we can capture as some sort of financial ratio. He used the term profit per X. You could think of it as revenue per X, just some sort of ratio. And what is X? What is X for that company? And he's like, if we increase X, everything else works, right? Profit per X, more X means more profit. And he's like, take that X and then 10 years out, 20 years out, what's the biggest you can get X to? So that if you're always reaching for that North Star, that X, you're always driving the financials of the company. And that big number, the 10X, 100X, 1000X, that is the big, hairy, audacious goal. And that is how I help companies grow and, and along with, with all of our consultants at, at Cruise Consulting, we got to help companies identify like, what are you the best in the world at? What's, what are you passionate about? And what's your economic driver? And then establish, okay, what's the X? X marks the spot, right? And then like, we can draw that out to your big, hairy, audacious goal. And that's, wow. that's like one exercise. That's it. Right. And now we can yeah. move on. And even asking those questions can just make a world of difference. All right. So just asking those questions can be enough to get the mind thinking. Definitely. And it's as simple as you may remember this from school. What are the W's? Who, what, 
where, when, why? It's actually the same questions. Like I'm just saying, start with why, right? Which is a whole other book and a whole other TED talk. Yeah, whole other story, right? Right. Answering the BHAG answers your why. And then, you know, there's the like, what? Like what product or service are we offering? And who, who's the target market? And an important one is like, how, how do we make money? Right. What's the right. revenue model behind all of this? Right. Um, and those, uh, just that simple framework and those questions, literally the W's is how we help companies um, establish their vision. Like what have, you're driving have, towards. Have you had people where there isn't an intersection or do you just have to look a little deeper? You know, like maybe their passion is totally different than what their business is or their passion is aligns up with something that doesn't line up with the, the economic drivers. And you know, maybe that's how you get a nonprofit. I don't know, but. Well, I mean, this is why they're like, they're circles, right? It's like, oh, let's, okay, let's, like, a let's like yeah. establish like, okay, here are the things that, yeah, we're best in the world that we're really great at. And it's like, as a leadership team, right? Establish those things. Okay. As a leadership team, what are we passionate about? Yeah. Right. And then, um, you know, for the economic drivers establishing like, okay, what are, what are those key drivers? And we're trying to find, we are trying to find the intersection between those, those three circles, right? And that's what we can drive, uh, drive forward as part of your BHAG. I, I see, it almost seems like if you, I'm sure I've neglected the social impact. You know, I don't think very many people start companies. You know, sometimes people have great stories like, oh, I started this to like cure world hunger. Some of us just wanted to, you know, mess around or try something or mm -hmm. just, see if it would have would work and then it starts working and sure. then later on can you change your why i think the why does evolve does over it? time um and that's why it's you know important to check in on the vision but you know it's yeah for it's for some people i think it's as simple as like i started a business in order to make money maybe that's as, maybe that's oversimplified for some people but for others um if you've ever read the book the e-myth um, Good. where he's like, people started as like technicians. Like I was in a company and I realized I was really good at this thing. And I'm like, why don't I strike out on my own to do the thing? Right. And in that book, he writes how like, yeah, they, what they made the leap. Um, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs in search of like freedom, mm -hmm. it's like, I think a lot of us, you know, um, didn't enjoy being in like a corporate environment or just felt constrained, um, by it. And that by starting our company, it's like, yes, we could unleash our ideas and our creativity. It's just at the same time, we hired ourselves into other jobs, <laughs> namely like the job of being like a manager. And now I need to create both. Um, I need to take my entrepreneurial like vision and like energy, that visionary stuff. But at the same time, there is a need for like structure and management and processes and systems, you know, and I think. This is an important, I think, understanding for, for many entrepreneurs to realize that like most kind of, kind of fit actually in the visionary kind of camp. Yeah. Um, and those that do need to hire more like general managers. Right. Right. Others are more process oriented and that's, uh, that's great. But in order to like really drive growth, they need that kind of inspiration of those big ideas. And I think there's the rare entrepreneur who can combine both or can be a little bit of both. Um, so I think having, having both of those and you know, for why people start companies, like, I think if there's any impact they're looking for, they think of it for themselves in terms of their freedom. And I think really like their families. And even it's like, I started a business in order to make money. Well, it's like, okay, why is, why is that important? Like, well, I don't know. You're going to use that money to like 
you know, pay for your kid's college education. Um, frankly, like take care maybe of your parents, grandparents, make sure that you, your partner, your family, you know, living into retirement. Right. And then how is that money getting allocated and invested? Like, you know, all of that is important to driving economic growth actually. Um, so I think, you know, and then the last thing I'll say on this is, you know, many entrepreneurs I've met, like fellow EO members, you know, yes, they're successful business people and they're good at making money. And yet almost all of them I've found have been involved in some form of philanthropy and like believe very strongly in giving back. Um, I'm thinking of some EO members who run marathons for Dana-Farber like cancer research. Yeah. And put a lot of effort into that. And to me, it's pretty incredible that, yeah, people who are business savvy, shrewd, focused on top line and bottom line, right? And in their personal lives, like they spend a lot of time being generous um, with their time and with their money and philanthropy. So, you know, I think it's not just one or the other. And, you know, one of the things I'm trying to drive is, yeah, how do we do it in alignment? Right. Because I think I went through this sort of progression where initially you're not thinking about it, at least in a, in a more global way or a more you know, macro way. You're, like you said, you're focusing on either family or the freedom and mm-hmm. sort of the small picture. And then as things grow and you evolve, you start realizing, well, this is not as satisfying as I thought it would be. You know, yeah, I got freedom, but now what do I do now? And then really that evolution is, well, let's contribute and maybe maybe it's just random other things like we talked about or maybe it can be integrated into your company as a whole i think it's yeah. an ideal way of doing that but i i definitely see that transition a lot of entrepreneurs sort of just going off and think oh yeah i yeah i've, I've made money or i i got that freedom or i got all those initial goals i wanted almost like they add contribution as a as a goal maybe intentionally or not secondarily or or your point earlier about it evolving, it, it comes in there eventually and you think, oh, wow, there is some power to this. Or I want to get back to the contribution I had when I was just a technician. And I think, um, especially those that have successfully grown their companies and their teams, and now they're like employing people, right? And creating, you know, economic opportunity. And I think freedom for, for others, um, that's, that's impactful. That's a huge amount of impact. Um, and, yeah, we don't have to think about that, do we, right? It depends, it depends how much you want to focus, like maybe not that part of it, right? But I think a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they think of like, who's on my, who's my team, Yeah. right? And um, thinking like, you know, Jack Ma, right? Alibaba, like founder, who's like, he's, you know, he, he, in some video, he's like, what made me successful is like, what do I need to do to keep my people happy, my leaders like happy? And I'm focused, I'm always focused on like their happiness. Um, and if they're happy, I'm happy. It makes me happy. <laughs> um, and I, I think there's some, there's some wisdom to that, right? Because as entrepreneurs, yes, we are leaders and we are leaders of leaders and we got to help our people grow. And that's how we grow and how our businesses grow. You know, when you, when you're in a position like that, yeah, you know, I'd love to ask you this. There's this other question around. Mm-hmm. It gets kind of isolating. It can be, I don't say lonely at the top or the cliche that it is, but it can be very isolating. And, and in a way it should be because you're not supposed to be communicating so many things. You try to keep your leaders happy perhaps. And mm-hmm. um, how have you found ways to still find connection um, while 
being at the top of an org chart and wanting to beat that team and, and, and keep encouraging them, but maybe have your own anxieties or fears. It's like, how do you express those? How do you communicate? How do you connect? Totally. Totally. So, um, couple different ways. Uh, the first is I'm, I'm fortunate to have a business partner. Uh, his okay. name is Kevin. So shout you know, Kevin, uh, we know him as Kevin Felix Chan KFC. So shout out to KFC. <laughs> I was almost a KFC, but they put an L in there. They saved me at the last minute. Wow. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've been, uh, co-founders and business partners, you know, from, from the beginning of our company. Um, so we've been to have that, you know, outlet and opportunity to, to help each other. And it's cool to see each other kind of learn and, and grow and exchange that, that learning. Um, and then, uh, definitely a huge one entrepreneurs organization, EO. So, you know, my own uh, journey as an entrepreneur, uh, I think a huge milestone was just learning about EO and joining the accelerator program. So I started an accelerator, uh, which for those who don't know, it's, it's about helping businesses, uh, scale up, uh, past uh, 1 million annual revenue. And then at that point, you qualify for membership into right. EO. And uh, I started an accelerator and within 18 months, I saw my business grow past that point. I was like, oh, I could join as a fellow member. And I gained so much in terms of uh, learning, experience shares, and having that outlet, uh, which in EO we think of as forum, mm-hmm. right? fellow business owners who, yes, are at the top of their respective organizations, right? And we're able to come together, right? These are like busy business owners, some of them running very big businesses, and they make time out of their month, like typically one afternoon or one morning a month, like three to four hours to spend time with like a group of like six to nine other business owners, right? Just to exchange experiences, and present on their biggest challenges and get feedback. Hugely, hugely powerful. Um, and it's like this beauty of like peer-to-peer learning and learning from experience and the, exp- the experiences of others. Um, and then also the gift of being able to share your own experience and again, your own growth with fellow business owners. Um, that's, been, that's been huge for me. Um, and that's why I'm you know, proud to, to continue being in. That's yeah. how we got connected and all that. Yeah, that's why. That's right. So yeah. we're here, you know, shout out to all our EO family members listening to this Shout out, guys. Um, can I take you back to, cause it, we could talk all day about EO, uh, but I wanted to ask you ab- about something before that, the co-founder, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, sometimes the co-founder is the topic that, you know, in EO is full of the challenges, almost like it's marriage counseling, right? It, it, sure. it's a, it's a partnership. It's your work spouse. Sometimes it's, it's. It can be intense. It sounds like you found a way to make it work with KFC. Any tips for the people listening? Do you recommend partnerships for everyone? Any tips for that? I I know in your cruise consulting work, maybe you've seen partnerships, Mm -hmm. you know, from what you've seen it working well and what not well, what could you tell us? Uh, I'll just share my experience and observations uh, on this, but fashion, true EO fashion. And on that point, both KFC and I are members of EO. So go. I'm actually uh, a past president of, uh, of Boston. Yeah. And as of this recording, KFC is an incoming president of Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Congrats. So yeah, we've got, um, you know, we've had each, each other to kind of exchange ideas. 
Um, and then we have our respective chapters and forums and, and all that. So, you know, we can, we have all those opportunities for, for sharing. And then um, within our own partnership, I'll say what's been um, really helpful is regular same page meetings. Um, literally meetings like on our calendar uh, where we meet. Um, for us, it's, it's once a week for um, like a two-hour meeting uh, to stay same page and aligned on, on what's happening with our leadership team and our business. And then um, like once a quarter and once a year, having a much longer meeting and in those meetings, looking at the business as investors in our own business. Right, the higher level, like we're investors, we're uh, co-owners, right? And then the week-to-week meeting is like, all right, we have hired ourselves as managers of this business, right? Let's look at it from that perspective. And okay. obviously, we're keeping those those two um, minds, those two hats on, like at all times. But you know, the different meetings kind of give air to like different um, challenges and opportunities that we can address. So I'll say those two things have been really helpful. Yeah, being part of a business association like EO. Um, having a regular same page meeting rhythm. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll share one more is, um, you know, in addition to EO, uh, we're part of an, another business association called ACE, uh, ACE Next Gen. And that one um, is specific uh, to supporting um, entrepreneurs of Asian American and, and Pacific Islander descent. Cool. Um, that has been also extremely fascinating that, um, I got, we've got our EO experience, but we're also getting this like ACE experience and it's just totally different experiences and we benefit from, from both of them. Um, and we're able to bring that into our business and into our personal lives and it helps us grow both personally and professionally. Well, that's great. A shout out to our ACE friends. Yeah. Listening. What's up? Uh, how would you describe the difference between the two? So, um, EO is number one, like a much, much larger organization. Okay. Um, so we actually recently cracked the 15,000 member mark globally. EO is active in over 60 countries, 200 chapters, you know, which Boston, Los Angeles are, are one chapter. And most of the chapters, well, a lot of chapters are in the United States, but it's a global organization. We've got chapters in, in the European continent, the African right. continent, Latin America, uh, all throughout Asia. It's really cool um, to have that kind of global perspective. Um, I will also say like, it's, it's kind of, it's funny for an entrepreneurial organization. There's also like a bureaucracy to it as well. There's like committees upon committees at like the <laughs> local level and like the global level. Um, and the business owners, because of the million dollar requirement, yeah, they're at a certain level and you learn a lot from, from that. Um, I think there's not as much of the like venture backed or like, um, high tech kind of like perspective mm -hmm. on yeah. things. Um, and I mean, this has been a big conversation within EO Boston, I'll say in among the U S chapters at least, but this is also true globally, um, which there's more men in the, uh, in the organization. Um, so there's, I don't think we get as, uh, many perspectives from our fellow, like women entrepreneurs. Mm, um, I think, yeah. I think, you know, within EO Boston, like trying to create more space for that. And we want to, I think, support and engage uh, more women entrepreneurs. Um, in contrast with ACE, it's uh, definitely more, there's more of a gender balance, certainly. Interesting. So there's more women entrepreneurs within, within ACE Next Gen. And then having that, um, uh, oh, age is a, another big difference. So within EO Boston, you know, the average age is closer to like 45 to 50 years old, mm -hmm. I would say. Okay. Um, whereas within ACE, they're all closer to my age, like uh, in their early to mid 30s. Um, some of them are in their 20s, some are older with families. Um, 
And so, and it, they don't have the revenue, same revenue requirement. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the businesses, um, you know, tend to, tend to be smaller, but like more nimble and agile result. And then some of them are like much bigger. Um, and the, some of the bigger ones uh, tend to be also like family businesses. It's like, you know, businesses that have been passed down to succeeding generations. Um, and then there's a certain perspective. There's an Asian American and like Pacific Islander perspective. And I'll just kind of highlight it as a, um, amongst a lot of the ACE members, uh, we're coming from immigrant families, like families that, you know, either had to leave it all behind in the origin country or, you know, were successful there and they're also starting something in the United States. Um, I know that's my own family story. My own, my own family, you know, chose to leave behind like their life in the Philippines in order to come to California. And that's where I was born. Um, and, you know, my dad started his own IT managed services businesses. He was an entrepreneur, um, you know, while raising my brother and me. And, you know, in order to come to this country, I had to like, you know, work with fellow Filipino immigrants in order to create a community of support. Um, and that's like a shared experience actually amongst like a lot of members of this group and Asian American Pacific Islander community. Um, and I'm sure that's shared amongst like a lot of EO members too, but it just doesn't, it doesn't come out in the same way. Yeah. We don't talk about this in the same way. Interesting. So yeah, it's been, it's really useful. I, I get a ton of value from both organizations. Um, and I get a ton of experience and they're different experiences. That's awesome. I appreciate you you sharing that between the, the two. I'm just excited to hear that there's more and more possibilities and ways of connecting with other people. And I think that just, that helps so much. And it's, it sounds like both you and your co-founder, both in EO, different chapters, and but the same page meeting as well, plus the associations. I can see that really just helping you both have places to vent. And you come together in the macro and the micro and you can, you can talk through things and make sure you're on the same page, which is just brilliant. Um, you know, you started getting into some of your, your family history. And I actually, my next question is really, who are you? Who are you? So, you know, <laughs> son of, you know, immigrants and they, they, they came over, like, who, what is your earliest memory? You know, what was it like growing up you? And how did you, did you ever, did you know you're going to found companies at, at an early age or, or how did that all come about? No, I did not know that I was going to found a company. And I didn't even think of myself as an entrepreneur until I joined EO, right. which would be like years later. So I'll just put it that way. I think looking back, I now looking back, right, connecting the dots, as Steve Jobs uh, <laughs> would say, um, it's like now I'm like, oh, I, I did have this entrepreneurial spirit like all the way through. The whole time. And yeah, where it really manifested itself was in Model the United Nations. Because when I was in high school, you know, like, yes, I was, you know, uh, you know, amb ambitious, like eager, perhaps over eager, like high school, you know, freshman, you know, and where, getting involved. Where, where'd you grow up? Like, uh, Southern California in Orange nice, County. Nice. Orange County. Yeah. I went to a large public high school. Um, it's like, Is that one of the kinds they like, they number? Did it have a name? No, <laughs> you're thinking, you're thinking like some of the like public schools or middle schools in like New York city. Like, Oh yeah. Uh, is that what it is? You no, know, something. No. Yeah. My, I went to, uh, I went to mission Viejo high school. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, in South orange County and it's like a large public high school, uh, that was really known for its football program actually, but had great, uh, drama music, uh, and, uh, model UN program. And in a school of population of like, I don't know, 2000 students, there were like 150 to 200 students that did model UN. 
How in the world is that possible? <laughs> um, well, the leadership of some great teachers and educators and student leaders that Amazing. created that. Yeah. And um, we weren't unusual, actually, for that area. There's at least like a dozen high schools down there that have large, like 100, 200 person, 300 person model UN programs. And the key thing is that they all host their own model UN conferences. Mm. And so growing up, it's like we just went to each other's conferences and then we would go to the big ones, uh, you know, um, nationally. And I was the secretary general of my high school's Model UN conference when I was a senior and was like, let's make all these changes. And, you know, I had to lead a team of my fellow students to like organize this conference. And I had to lead their parents because the parents had to volunteer for the conference. And... As like a 17 year old, you know, I'm managing, I don't know, it was like a $40,000 budget, right? For our campus. Yeah. And it made a profit. The conferences make profits, which are reinvested into the program to send kids to more conferences. Um, and I look back at that. I did not, the word entrepreneur was like not in my head. No, right. you were totally doing that. Yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm a 17 year old. I'm like a secretary general of this, uh, of this conference. And that experience through Model UN um, and organizing that conference and going to other conferences, uh, that got me into university. Um, and so I went, to, I went to Yale where I continued to do Model UN. I organized Yale's Model UN conference and majored in politics um, and political science. Wow. And throughout that entire time, I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Go figure. So Model UN, and it got you into Yale. Did, 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 did you apply? Did you get on like a, a Model UN scholarship or like how, how did they, I, uh, you ran the whole. I mean, I did write it like into my college, like oh, application. Yeah. It was pretty much there along with all the other good stuff that, yeah, is needed to get into competitive you colleges. Grades were, were great because I've done things like that and my grades just tank because I'm so focused on the other thing, but you were able to keep everything going. All right. If you want to like really geek out on that. Um, yeah. yeah, I'd like a, like a five point something like weighted GPA. And I was, <laughs> and I was only number two in my class. Because <laughs> somebody else was like a 5.5. 5, like yeah. 5.1. Yeah. We had that kind of competitive and great academic programming and I had great teachers. I was thankful. Wow. I think privileged to have great teachers. Um, yeah. And I did well on my tests, my SATs, but what really, you know, I did all the extracurriculars. Yep. Um, and Model UN was like the one thing where I demonstrated the most amount of experience. Um, but what really I think did it was the personal essay. Hmm. And, you know, when I, I, I work with students and I, I coach them through, through this part of it. And the personal essay I wrote about how um, I was, I actually lacked, I felt like I lacked confidence like going into, uh, into high school, um, especially because I actually thought I was going to be more of a music person and like I love to sing but I went through puberty and like my voice changed and like my voice would crack and other kids would make fun of me. And like, that actually really hurt my confidence going to high school. Out, man. Um, but that's when I discovered model UN and public speaking. And I realized that I was good at this activity and I grew as a leader through this activity. And I wrote in that essay, like if I couldn't um, inspire others through song, I could lead them through speech. And I feel like after, you know, four years of high school, like doing all this stuff that I've finally found my voice. And that was like the title of the, the essay. Um, and I think that's what, that's oh, what, man. that's what got me into Yale. I don't know if you were, you just, you're spewing sound bites left and right. Maybe it's, 
maybe it's a podcast for me. I'm like, oh my God, the idea of inspiring through song or leading them with your voice and amazing. I, I, I can see like the confidence shift. Did, did the voice ever come back? Did you ever get that singing voice back? <laughs> um, I still will play and sing. I don't know if it has ever really come back. Uh, so I do focus on the, on the public speaking a little your bit. Friend, do your friends encourage you to do more or less? <laughs> um, they would rather me like play piano. I think I'm um, like, Hey, there's a, there's a piano over here, man. Let's go over here. <laughs> I'm like, uh, we joke. I'm like a human karaoke machine. They'll put like, uh, they'll call out a song and I'll look it up on like the chords on my what's phone. You, and what's just... your song? What's your go-to karaoke song? Um, I don't know about karaoke, but for piano, uh, there is your song by Elton John. Uh, which plays really well on on piano and yes. karaoke. Um, I'm a big Elton John fan and and Billy Joel. Yep. So Billy Joel's great for piano and and uh, rock and roll and a little bit of jazz. So you can sit uh, down at a, at a piano and just whip out your song. Uh, yeah, actually, That's yeah, I know that one. Man. I know That's that by heart. Um, yeah, and just chords. When you learn how to play chords, um, and you know how to improvise against it, then yeah, you can at least you know make up like different right. playing different songs it won't sound as good obviously it's like the artists are a real professional but you know it's fun it's fun yeah so it sounds um, like music wait. has always been a been there it, it different has had to had to change a little bit and modify its presence but it's always been a part of your life as well as yeah. now the confidence from speaking yeah i'm thankful to, to have that actually music uh throughout my life and um, i learned piano i learned guitar um i still sang i just didn't sing like high parts anymore i was like a like a bass totally. <laughs> you know, i was listening to a bunch of 80s songs on on spotify on the car ride home the other day and i'm like man these are all high <laughs> these are all really high yeah Again, that did not do well for my confidence as a uh, <laughs> high school student. Um, oh, wait, Casey, I need to flip this on you. You yeah. did Model UN I when you did. were a student. I Tell did. me about that. I yeah, want to know about college. that. It was in college. I had this Greek history professor. I don't know if it was because of the incentive or because a friend was doing it, but I ended up getting into it. I think I transferred in, so sophomore year. And okay. just every year, it was just awesome. And we always went to... I'm sure you you're probably I want to know. Yeah. What conferences yeah. you go to? It was, it was in Boston. It was every year. It was it was in Boston. We were a small school. So when okay. you mentioned your high school having hundred, I think we had I mean, our delegation would be eight people, you know, yeah. We, yeah, just a small, humble little group. And then it was funny because we had these two professors. We had you know one who was Greek and then one who was, uh, I think, German. Mm -hmm. And one was conservative and one was liberal, but they, they balanced each other out and they loved hanging out with each other. And they both sponsored this program. And cool. I'm, I'm sure there's part of your grade got bumped if you went, but either way I, I got involved <laughs> and it was, it was a go-to. It was, a, it was, I, I loved doing it. And we would go to Boston. It was at the park Plaza hotel. Okay. Relic. Was it like a big conference, like thousands of people there? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Then you must have attended the Harvard National Model United that Nations was Conference. Totally. At the Boston Park Plaza, which yeah. up until the pandemic was, yes, uh, continued to be held there. Did you ever hear that one? Yeah. I competed at that I'm conference. Sure I saw Yale there. <laughs> Yale, Yale would go to that conference. I competed at that conference. What I, would you be if you were Yale? Because for people listening, depending on how amazing your school was or big your, I don't know how the choosing happens. You can explain that, but you would have an amazing country. And then yours truly and his delegate of eight from Riviera College would be, you know, <laughs> check 
Republic or, you know, Yugoslavia or something or some some small country from Africa. And and nothing, nothing wrong with representing those countries, which is what I tell my my students. And actually, it's a huge learning opportunity because a lot of students, especially high school, middle school, they get assigned countries they knew nothing about. They didn't even know existed. So it's, yeah. it's great for that. Uh, but to answer your question, you know, for for Yale and other competitive model UN teams, which, yes, we like analyze and we rank them all. Um, you know, there's a certain strategy behind which countries to select, to represent. Um, it is up to the conference organizers. So Harvard students do need to determine and they pick based on, you know, who's performed well in prior years, who's been going for a long time. And so, Gail, yeah, we, would, we would perform well like year to year and, and get um, good country assignments like uh, every year. Mm -hmm. But we're allowed to kind of submit preferences ahead of time. Right. And the obvious one, like a go-to one for a lot of schools would be like, let's represent the United States, you know, big country, like has a lot, has the name brand and the pool, but um, it also puts a target on your back from a strategic perspective because everyone kind of at least thinks they know the policy of the US and they have expectations around how you're going to represent that policy in a committee. Um, so you, I'll, eyes are on you. Um, Yale would, at the time at least, choose other um, P5 countries, permanent five countries, uh, like the United Kingdom or <laughs> France, um, also like uh, sometimes China or Russia, um, because it's like you're not, you know, you don't have, you're not dead of center. <laughs> you know, you have yeah. less of a target on your back. And especially if you play something like the United Kingdom uh, or France, you can, depending on the topic, create a bridge behind, uh, between a position represented by the United States, sometimes like a hard policy position and other parts of the world. And you could slide in as like that mediator that's helping these different groups. Of It'd countries. be a lot more fun, right? Because you're, you're, you're the, not known, but you're not unknown, but you have room to maneuver and did, did your, did your school, were you graded on, on your performance there? So in high school, we were because model UN was part of a class. Actually, it was a co-curricular honors history class from ninth grade all the way to 12th grade. Wow. We got extra credit for winning awards at conferences and we were required to attend conferences. Um, and I would win awards. Again, as a high school student, I would end the year with like 200% on my like grade <laughs> because I would actually do well academically and actually yeah. like, you know, do well on the test. But then all the awards, I would get like extra credit on top of that. Wow. Um, in college uh, for Yale, Model UN is not part of a course or a class. Okay. It's purely uh, extracurricular uh, club and activity. And it's actually the, um, at least at the time, like it was the largest student run organization on campus. Um, because we hosted our own conferences and, uh, we sent people to conferences both nationally and, and internationally. Um, even, even like, uh, publishing our own magazine, wow. we would sponsor service trips to like other countries. Um, there's a lot that actually the model UN club at Yale, uh, known as the Yale international relations association. Um, we just did as students, but just like, we're just doing all this stuff and it's fun. There has to be something to those kind of associations. For me in college, um, it was a theater group, hmm. theater company was my version of what you've described. But whether whatever it is, like there, when they give you that amount of responsibility and budget and wiggle room and freedom to just sort of innovate, I feel it's it's like such an incubator for entrepreneurship. And that's the funny thing. I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur through right. all of that right. in high school 
or college or post-college. I, again, I, I studied political science. I thought I was going to go into law school or something. And I ended up in finance. Like I worked at Goldman Sachs uh, for a few years. Yeah. And Yale, you know, got to, got to do something with that. I mean, um, I mean, all the, all the big, you know, Wall Street firms as well as management consulting firms. Yeah. They target campuses to do recruiting at. And it's actually a whole thing on these college campuses, like at, at Yale, your senior year, like I'm seeing all my friends like run around in suits and like going to info sessions and like <laughs> talking about the interviews they're getting. It creates, um, we didn't know this, I didn't know this term at the time. It creates a lot of FOMO actually. Yes. And just like, oh my gosh, should I be doing that? And, you know, I, I applied to like a hundred places, right? Like through, you know, we had a central system for applications. Sent, I think I sent my resume to like a hundred different companies. I interviewed at 10. I only got one job offer at the end of it. Um, and that offer was to work at, work at Goldman. Um, so for me, that was like huge. And I really do credit, um, like what I learned through model UN. And I think more importantly, the relationships that I built, uh, because of model UN that helped me get that job because, you know, it's interviewing skills, it's communication skills, it's social skills and knowledge of global affairs and economics. It's, you know, I I think it made me an interdisciplinary person, um, which I think was attractive. And, you know, I went to work for a part of the company where, um, our job was to make sure that Goldman did not go bankrupt in the event of a financial crisis. And I hit the desk in like July, August of 2008. Oh. I graduated in May of 2008. I hit the desk July, August, moved to New York City. And then September 15, like Lehman Brothers files for bankruptcy and triggers like the global financial crisis. Um, and I had friends who were working at Lehman, I had friends at, across you know the different banks. And I remember walking to the office the next day and everybody's kind of like running around with their hair on fire. I'm like, is this, is this normal? <laughs> <laughs> like the other analysts associates like, no, this is not, this is not normal. This is like, this is our time. Like, this, is our t- this is our time now. Yeah. <laughs> this is our time. Um, and I remember just going through that and yeah, it was, it was both exciting. I mean, I was young in my career and mm-hmm. I personally, you know, didn't have a lot at stake, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not later in my career. Um, but I know for a lot of people, like, yeah, there was a huge impact, like going through that. Um, and, you know, we did our, we did our job. Uh, Goldman did not go bankrupt during the financial crisis. Um, I think there were some like close calls actually. Um, but yeah, I did that for two years. And at the end of it, I decided I did not want to be on Wall Street anymore. Can't and imagine I- why. after experiencing all of that that's amazing i mean there's you know there's that and you know there's the there's the money right yeah Yeah. these jobs pay well um but i wasn't feeling for me i wasn't feeling the passion and i wasn't feeling the impact and i wasn't feeling the why like why am i here and what am i doing and i i remember thinking to myself like i'm here because i got into yale and i had this expectation both like from my friends and from myself and even thinking about going back, like my parents, like, what do they expect of me? I need to apply to like, you know, the biggest jobs I can, the biggest firms. And I realized that was actually very useful to have that kind of motivation and push. And it did incentivize me to perform. But when I had the time to really reflect on myself and my why, I'm like, I want to do something that I believe makes an impact I want to try it at least for a couple of years. I want to try this idea that um, I had with KFC because we did a whole like 
post-college Euro trip to take a blog about Model United Nations that I started out of my Yale dorm room and take that blog and turn it into a business that would teach Model UN to other kids and other students all over the world because there's a need for that. And I know how much this activity impacted me. And I'm like, I think, you know, this could impact other people. And I'll, I'll give it a shot. And maybe, you know, maybe it won't work out. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back to business school. I'll do something else with my life. But I'm, I'm in a privileged position to be able to like afford to take this risk. Um, but maybe, you know, it could work and we'll see, we'll see where it goes. And uh, that was like 10 years ago, Casey. And it's amazing, man. That's now here you and I are talking as fellow business owners and entrepreneurs. Well, hey, I know you're going to turn into a pumpkin soon. So I got to ask you one final question. Sure. It's a bit of a hypothetical. I may or may not have a time machine in my backyard here in Nashville, New Hampshire. It's under a tarp. It's in the back. So, you know, COVID and everything's done. You know, you get a free moment. You come visit, you know, hang out, get some beers, some lobster, and I'll let you use the time machine. Um, and it goes back in time to a certain particular moment. It goes back in time to a few days, uh, right around the time you're talking to KFC, you're looking to maybe start this thing. You get to go visit yourself. You get to visit you back then. And knowing everything you know about yourself and everything you've been through since then, what kind of advice would you tell yourself? Because it's not like back to the future. You can talk to yourself. What would you tell yourself? Man, uh, all right. Taking that specific point in time, I can literally remember like the train. I think I think we were going from like Dusseldorf to Paris. You know, I'm talking with KFC, and I had the Moleskin Journal, or like writing this stuff down. And it's like if I can go back and talk to that young person, um, it's something around like I think I was very focused on like the what of this thing, and like what are we gonna do? And I would advise myself to like think of the who. Think of like the team that you're building. Think of uh, uh, the community that you're building through this business and who you're really helping your customers. And a very concrete thing. Yes, I think I would have told my younger self, check out this EO thing. Check out this accelerator thing. Um, invest in your professional development and your understanding of business and like entrepreneurship and invest in it, not just from a like, what books do I need to read or what courses can I take? Invest in it from who am I learning from and how am I providing value back in the form of my own experiences and, and ideas? Um, I think if there's one, you know, really concrete thing, and yes, I know this is like the EO, well, Boston podcast, but um, being part of, of a community of fellow business owners and entrepreneurs has probably been the most impactful thing on my, you know, professional career and career as an entrepreneur. Um, just surrounding yourself with good people, like fundamentally good people who are also smart and successful. Uh, it's, it's huge. Like, how can you place a value on, on that? It's just a huge amount of value. Yeah, um, I like it. So I think I would have told that my younger self that, and I hope I would have listened. As right? like a 20, 22 year old. <laughs> yeah. I'm you. Listen to me right now. I, I wish I would. T it was like, you know, believe, this is going to work. Like yeah. what you're writing down, all this stuff, this is going to work. But what's going to really accelerate this and, and get you where you want to go is 
focusing on the who, like you've got your why. You got the, at that point, you know, it's like, you know, after quitting my job at Goldman and like starting this company, I've, I feel privileged again. Like I haven't had to question my why. Like I love doing what I do and I love the impact that like my, my team really like creates on, on students. It's not, it's not just me. It's like my co-founder, our leadership team, all of our staff, all of our people, the teachers we have the privilege of working with, the students and the parents we get to work with. Like it's a huge, you know, I don't think of the team as just my leadership team. It's like, we're all working together as a team. I think we have a huge amount of impact. So I've never questioned the why. I think um, I wish I would have focused sooner on the who. And I think I, I wish I would have joined EO sooner than I did. Yeah. I wish I joined Accelerator. I, d- I didn't even know about that. Accelerator is huge. It really does that would have been awesome. accelerate, uh, accelerated my business growth, yeah. I will say. 100%. It's amazing. Well, dude, this has been fantastic. Where can people connect with you? They want to reach out. What social platforms are good? Yeah. Uh, for Model United Nations, check out learnmodelun.com. Learnmodelun.com if you want to learn more about Model UN and also check out our Model UN summer camps. Uh, they're, they're offered virtually this summer um, and we're running them every single week. So check out learnmodelun.com. Uh, if you want to reach me and talk to me about Model UN, Ryan at bestdelegate.com. Uh, and that's where you can reach me. And if you want to talk business and entrepreneurship, you can also reach me, Ryan at cruiseconsultinggroup.com, um, where I help companies grow uh, their business. I help entrepreneurs grow their companies and their businesses. Amazing. LinkedIn, Twitter as well? Good places to find you? or uh, Yeah. Uh, email. Beautiful. Email. Beautiful. We got all the socials, but like, yeah, email's the best way to reach me. And we don't have time, but I guess they can ask you about Burning Man too, which maybe we'll have to have you come. Back oh man! Oh, that's right. That. We did. We didn't get the Burning Man. We got okay. a couple minutes left. Was that another impactful experience in your life? Oh, huge amount of impact. Are you kidding me? Yeah, huge amount of impact yeah, to go like Burning Man. Is it a must go for you every year? Um, there, there are years that so I've been like six times. Okay. Um, so is that enough? Um, so have you got your your fix, or would you? keep going back. I went, I think I went for like five years straight and then I think I took a year off and then like went back. So, you know, I think you get to a point where it's like, okay, you know, I'll go when I go right now. I mean, this year I would have really, really loved to go this year, especially like coming out of the pandemic. Um, I think next year will be pretty, you know, God willing, it it takes place. Like, you know, it'll be pretty epic. Um, but yeah, Burning Man has had a huge impact, um, on my life personally. And I also think professionally, um, and fun fact, uh, uh, KFC and I hosted the first ever, and to my knowledge, the only model United Nations conference to ever take place at Burning Man. We called it oh Burning Mun. We <laughs> called it Burning Mun. Um, and to my pleasant surprise, I thought it, it would descend into like, you know, some form of organized chaos. But um, no, we hosted it like on the playa, made it publicly available to everybody. It was listed in the Burning Man events guide. Or you got a listed, there's an events guide, number one for Burning Man, believe it or not. And number two, it was listed as an event you could attend. And we debated uh, billionaires at Burning Man. Like, is that a good thing or a bad thing for Burning Man? And like all these like Silicon Valley, like camps and, and all this stuff. And I thought it would go one way. I thought it, everybody would just be like, you know, criticize, criticize the billionaires. But uh, it was a divided debate. And there's certainly that camp, uh, that group, of, that point of view. But there's another point of view. And I remember one person made a speech. I was like, you know, someone may come here and yeah, they paid their way to be here. They hired other people to just organize everything for them. 
but maybe they're really impacted. They're really inspired and they fund a piece of art the following year that everybody loves. It's like, how can you deny that person that experience and that impact? And I was like, okay, we've got different perspectives on this issue as ridiculous as the thought of hosting a Mario conference at Burning Man was, it turned out to be really epic. And I really think it's because of Model UN as an activity. It's just, it really allows for different points of view, whether you're a kid or a teen or an entrepreneur or a burner. So yeah, I've loved uh, attending Burning Man. Man, that, that is fantastic. Just the idea that we can sit, sit down, we don't have to be tribal. We don't have to be one way or the, we can just have a conversation. Like, what's your point of view? Let me, let me hear that. And you made a great argument and there's all, all uh, arguments the other direction. And sure. And that's the, that's the point. Let's, let's hear all the sides. It's amazing. Now there were other like types of speeches that I cannot repeat on this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, but it was, you know, it was all fun. It was all, it was all good and good and fun. What's your number uh, one tip? If you, if you're going to attend Burning Man, what's your number one tip? Oh man. Um, uh, there's like obvious things, which is like, you got to prepare, like Drink. prepare for this thing. <laughs> I think, um, and that was a tip. I'll just say the experience, uh, here's my experience slash tip, right? Is that I think people think Burning Man is some, you know, huge party in the middle of the desert. And it's certainly that, like there is that, but the things that people don't realize about Burning Man until you go is the deeply spiritual, um, aspects of it. It's not just like the emotional high of like partying and like being around and all that, but there's all, it's the whole range of human emotion that you can experience at Burning Man, um, from the celebration to even the sorrow. And I think it's really represented by both the man that's at the center of Burning Man that yes, we burn at the end of the week and it's like a huge epic party, but on the, uh, next to it, just a little down the way from it is the temple which is where people visit throughout the week and like honor past loved ones or like really release like, you know, sorrows and pains. And the day after the man burns is when we burn the temple. And that's like a huge spiritual experience. It's cathartic for a lot of people. And for me, it represents, you know, the celebration and the spiritual of Burning Man. That range of emotion is available to you at Burning Man. And Whatever you may think you're going to get at Burning Man, like the, the playa will provide in its own way. And that's what we say, the playa will provide. So I think just be open to the experience as open as you can. I tried to be as open as I could. And I found myself mind blown in ways like that I, I couldn't conceive uh, by, by attending. So yes, I am a big fan of, of Burning Man. Um, and I think there's a huge a lot, range of nuance and emotion to it that I wish... Uh, and I hope more people appreciate. Yeah, the spiritual side, it's cool. It sneaks up on some people, but really there, there's some, some healing going on in the desert, which is, which is really powerful. It's, it's hugely powerful. And I'll, I'll say this with a few minutes on Burning Man. Um, there are kids that go to Burning Man, like parents who bring their children to Burning Man. And there's a whole zone in Black Rock City at Burning Man that is dedicated to just kids, just kids hanging out, uh, being free in the desert, like just with other people, with their parents that are, you know, it's up to them to take charge and, and make sure that they're all good and happy and staying hydrated and, and eating well. Um, and yeah, I think people think of Burning Man as like this one thing, but actually there's a range. And I've seen children there, 
seeing, um, you know, elderly seniors there and I see everybody having a great time. I've seen people like really healing and, and having the spiritual experience there. So I really enjoy it, um, as like truly like an arts festival, like art in every sense of the word. And I think it is, uh, I think it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It's so rounded and a festival that really serves every part of you, you know, every facet of a person that. Well, now, Casey, I mean, are you going to go to Burning Man? You know what? Getting permission to go to Burning Man <laughs> or, uh, you know, or convincing my co-delegate from ah, the yes. country of Cheshire that, Indeed. that I, I can have a responsible time <laughs> at said festival. That is a challenge. I'll have to get, I'll have to consult with you to get some, some, uh, some tips on convincing. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, if you need a facilitator, yeah, uh, you know, in a chair for this debate here, um, you know, can help, uh, help adjudicate. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I appreciate that. And dude, I, thank you so much for coming on here. Surely. Your business thoughts, your the experiences at Burning Pan, your story, um, all those things. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for hosting this podcast. This is a gift, I think, to, uh, to EO Boston and I think what you're doing for fellow entrepreneurs and business centers. So thank you, Casey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. And it sounds like we could probably talk for nine more hours. But for those of you listening, if you learned something, if you heard something that strikes your interest or, or you want to go back and remember, share this with someone else. Share this with another founder. Share this with someone who needs to hear some of the things that have been talked about here. Uh, and that makes you a thought leader, even with just one person or 300 people. Um, and with that, this has been another episode of Leadership in Action. EO Boston, we'll thank you all, everyone, and we'll catch you all next time. Leadership in Action is sponsored by the Boston chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. As the world's only peer-to-peer -peer network exclusively for entrepreneurs, EO helps transform the lives of those who transform the world.